Hello and welcome to Gamma Project. My name is Dean Statman, I'll be your host, and this is episode four. This episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way you were born to. Ultra's founders noticed something, that the design of most running shoes was hurting runners more than helping them. In traditional running shoes, elevated heels promote a high-impact landing, and narrow, pointy toe boxes squeeze the toes out of their natural position, increasing risk of bunions, hammer toes, and plantar fasciitis. So, a couple of years ago, Ultra founder Golden Harper began melting off outsoles and removing the excess heel elevation from his traditional running shoes. It wasn't pretty, but it worked, and the term zero drop was coined to describe level cushioning and perfect weight balance from heel to forefoot. Today, every Ultra running shoe features a fully cushioned zero drop platform that places the heel and forefoot at the same distance from the ground. This natural balance aligns the feet, back, and body posture for less impact. It also strengthens the Achilles and lower calf muscles that have been weakened over a lifetime of running on elevated heels. In addition to zero drop, Ultra's foot-shaped toe box allows the toes to relax and spread out naturally, while allowing the big toe to remain in a straight position. This enhances stability and creates a powerful toe-off to maximize running performance. I was introduced to Ultra a couple of years ago, and their running shoes have since become a sort of secret weapon for me. I break them out for especially punishing runs, and when it's time to go off-road, their trail shoes are the only ones I'll wear. The Lone Peak is my personal favorite. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space and get fired up for taking your runs outside with their lineup of fast and light road shoes. One model to check out for sure is the Ultra Duo, which features 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel, and weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. If you're interested in checking out the Ultra Duo, you can head to fleetfeetsports.com. That's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T sports.com. They'll be available there through March. Ultra is also committed to helping runners avoid injury by teaching efficient, low-impact running technique. Golden, who, by the way, ran a world record 2-hour 45-minute marathon when he was just 12 years old, taught me everything I know about running with proper form. By focusing on just four core pillars, we completely overhauled my running form and noticeably improved my performance and efficiency. In case you're curious, since you're listening to a podcast about self-improvement after all, those four pillars were, number one, establishing a forward momentum posture. And Golden has a great way of explaining this, where he'll have you stand up in a straight line, lean forward from your ankles, and as you're about to fall over, that is your running posture. Number two, utilizing a proper arm swing. So not letting your arms flail left and right as you're running, keeping them going forward and back, and also not allowing your elbows to come forward past your chest. Number three, cultivating low impact landings. And really that's just learning how to land lighter on your feet and also using your legs as springs instead of relying on your footwear to do that for you. And lastly, number four, maintaining a high cadence, essentially covering the same amount of ground with more steps. You can find more information on those, which I encourage you to check out if you're a runner, along with all kinds of advice and tips for proper running form, 
as well as, of course, information on all of Ultra's products at ultrarunning.com. That's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Gamma Project. Today's guest is one of the toughest, most inspiring women I have ever had the pleasure to meet. She's also one of the most connected and knowledgeable people in the U.S. fitness industry. Ali Teach is the founder of The Sweat Life, a popular fitness blog slash online video series, which I've been a fan of for years, and you can find it at sweatlifenyc.com. Since leaving the corporate world behind to pursue her now ubiquitous fitness startup, Ali has grown her brand to over 70,000 Instagram followers and has collaborated with some of the largest brands in the world, including Adidas, Cliff Bar, and many, many more. Ali is also president of The Talent Hack, a newly launched website that connects professionals to brands in the fitness industry. In this wide-ranging interview, Ali recounts in detail what it was like to detach from corporate America and start her own business. We discuss all the emotions, the expectations, highs and lows that came with that decision, as well as how she overcame specific challenges along the way. At the heart of Ali's success, aside from an immortal work ethic and a genuine compulsion to make people's lives healthier and better, is her skill as a networker. In this conversation, Ali explains the tactics that she employs when reaching out to a brand for the first time, as well as the strategies that she relies on to convert an idea into a conversation and ultimately a business deal. In that vein, Ali provides some great insight into the inner workings of the sweat life, particularly how she designed the architecture of the site to support a booming partnership business from day one. We also talk about Ali's three pillars for personal wellness, which support her energy, her creativity, and her mental health, as well as the behaviors that she avoids, including incessant social media interactions, in order to remain healthy, happy, and focused. This episode is truly one for everyone, and as always, I encourage you to listen all the way through. It's a powerful one. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Ali Teach. Ali. Hi, Dean. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm well on this rainy afternoon. I know. It's it's actually a very cozy, perfect day to podcast. It is. We're actually sitting next to a fireplace. We are. And you had asked me before if we should light the fire, and that sounded amazing, but I was worried that the crackling might totally ruin the yes. recording. As was I in my production background. I'm like, this would be really cozy, but the <laughs> I'm worried about the sound quality. Exactly. So, so sound quality over life quality, one for podcasting. But we have some candles. We have some... Oh, I didn't even notice that. Oh, yeah. You did work over it? here. There's a little, like, got some hummus... Different kinds of nuts? Nuts, goji berries. Oh, is that what that is? Um, roasted chickpeas. And then my my little bad addiction, but it's not so bad, uh, Justin's peanut butter cups in dark chocolate. Oh, nice. They're insane. <laughs> and I will force you to eat one before you leave. Oh, I'll eat one for sure. Or five. Or maybe. I'm trying to keep dairy limit. Actually, I basically don't eat dairy anymore, but I will obviously fall off the wagon sometimes because pizza. <laughs> I love that because pizza. I, mean, I I am also a non-dairy person. Oh, and no way. Also fall off the wagon because of pizza. And nice. 
cheese. Okay, so we'll definitely come back to this. <laughs> yeah. Where I want to start is the place that, um, or rather the thing that most people will sort of connect you to right now if they just sort of heard your name, uh, which is The Sweat Life. So why don't we start by you sort of telling me what The Sweat Life is, um, and we'll go from there. Great. Um, so The Sweat Life is a small media company, the health and fitness space. Um, if you head to our website, sweatlifenyc.com, um, you're actually not going to see a ton of new content. The website, as I like to say, is taking a little nap, gets up once in a while if there's a pertinent article or we're doing a brand collaboration. Um, but we really live on social media at this point, um, at sweatlife underscore NYC on Instagram. Um, so that's where most of the content lives as most people, most content does live these days. So, um, crazy. and, uh, we actually started as a video series in the boutique fitness space. So video series, website, social media outlet, um, and it's kind of just turned into a recording of my life in the health and wellness space. So if you're not interested in following me around all day, you're not going to enjoy this one life. <laughs> <laughs> and so how many episodes have you guys done now? Uh, we've done over 40 episodes. Wow. Um, so the episodes, the, the web series um, are um, each episode I go and try a different uh, workout or health regimen um, or trend in the health space, but mostly it's boutique fitness classes. Um, so it's like, hey guys, today we're checking out Barry's Bootcamp. Today we're checking out Peloton. Um, and it's not is berries better or worse than something similar or is mm -hmm. peloton the best spin class it's just what is it and i felt like and i can go into the whole backstory of why i started sweat life and it will give more context um but when we the video series in particular i was like fitness is just far too experiential for people to read about these classes mm -hmm. um and people are pouring thousands of dollars into these workouts and what you choose to do as your workout is actually a very important decision in your health life mm -hmm. and one of the biggest my biggest mottos in health is there is no best there's only what's best for you and what's best for you is what's going to make you feel best and what you're actually going to stick to so being able to see something just makes you a little bit more informed and prepared and empowered to make a decision of something. It's gonna set you up for success to find something there you're actually gonna enjoy or stick to. So oftentimes people will be like, oh my God, I heard about this tone house thing and everyone's talking about it, I should totally go. And they'll maybe read a few lines. They're like, well, I know how to run and do burpees, this is cool. <laughs> and then five minutes oh, into boy. the warm up to anyone who's done tone house, they're like, I am going to, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah. I am going to fucking die. Um, I have almost puked several times. For me, it was more like, I think I'm fucking dying current. Like, I think I'm in this, the, the process of dying. Like, yes, yes. Like, like a minute and a half in. Yeah. Um, that warm up is the equivalent to some workouts. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. And I actually think the warm up is one of the hardest parts of the workout. I think the hardest part is doing the runners when you have your hands on the, the bell slides. You know what I'm uh, talking about? Yes, where it's yes, sort of like yes. a bear crawl, but like yeah. accelerated. Because what do you do? You do like three laps around the studio. Yes. And then you all do sprints. 
yes. and gallops yes. and then you do another three laps and you repeat that like four times which yeah, is it's nuts it's savage i see for me i think i just like naturally have crazy core strength so mm-hmm. that is not the hardest part to me and i love sprinting i was an athlete um but i cannot gallop for the life of me like there's nothing about it that's enjoyable my form is bad like i just feel like a rabid like monkey of sorts just i mean all athleticism just goes out the window it's not the most flattering <laughs> no although i mean who knows i'm still single so um but but anyway so my whole belief was someone should see tone house before signing up for it mm-hmm. um and then they can make a decision of like, oh my God, that's totally not for me. Or they maybe they heard it was the hardest workout in New York and they wouldn't even touch it. But after seeing it, they're like, that feels like sports practice. I want to go to that. Yeah. Um, but how are you going to know that without seeing it? And and also things, you know, to continue on, on the Tone House track, um, you know, when we may make our episodes, it's not just about showing the workout, but it's introducing you to the people behind the workout Mm -hmm. and it's really learning the brand and the heart and soul of it um and again i can get into all of my philosophies on people needing to be um emotionally connected to their health journey we absolutely will yeah um but you know when you meet alonzo who -hmm. is the founder and head coach of tone house he is i call him a gentle giant i mean he is huge he is this impressive athlete and then you speak to him and he has started this for all the reasons that make you want to believe mm-hmm. in it and want to make you show up. And he's so loving and encouraging and supportive through this insane workout. Um, and that also makes a difference. And maybe just meeting Alonzo and his story is something that will get people to connect with Tone House. Um, so, so yeah, so, so those are the video series. If, if you are wanting to check out different types of workouts around New York, um, it's a great way to do that. Um, and then the website sort of delves deeper into the stories behind the space. So like blog posts and, and things like that. Yeah, so I started it as um, contribute. It's all contributed content, mm. except for there's um, this the one column called Alley Sweats. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like... a a letter from the editor every week when we were doing every week content. Um, and But everything else was contributed content. And at first, I wanted contributed content because I was like, I don't have money to hire enough of a staff to create the type of content, the amount of content that we need. Mm-hmm. So this is a really easy way to get a lot of content. But on the other side of that too is, you know, I... I have so many issues with digital digital media in general, but but classic journalism is often the voice of the journalist mm-hmm. telling someone else's story. And I think it's so different when you get to hear someone else's story or their tips or their health journey, whatever it may the story of how they started a brand, directly from them in their voice. There's just something powerful about that. Totally, and that's that's exactly what drew me to start this podcast. I mean, these episodes are, I would say, ninety nine percent unedited. Like, maybe if I make an awful joke. <laughs> or, What's your one? What's your best? Or one? if there was just, or I mean, they get edited out for a reason. No, but in all seriousness, I've I've actually, I mean, I've never edited out a single like 
piece of a conversation, like a thing that was spoken about, and then it was like, oh, don't want to talk about that. Like, it's very much unfiltered um, for oh that my exact God, guys, reason. Guys, I'm so sorry for that reason. You're going to hear. <laughs> I'm like the most overly verbose person. Yes. <laughs> Um, so you, before um, Sweat Life, you know, you, you transitioned from working for people, which most yes. people do, to working for yourself. Yes. And even before this, you had a you know, pretty impressive resume. You helped organize uh, you know, Tribeca Film Festival. Um, you worked for a couple of places. You've been an event producer. You helped uh, set up Glamour Women of the Year Awards. What was it? Take me through sort of working, going through that transition of maybe from the moment you realized I don't want to work for other people anymore or mm. whatever the motivation was to eventually um, working for yourself. And I know that there is a much deeper backstory uh, when it comes to like the motivations for sweat life and, and we can get there um, if you want. But just on the more sort of logistical side, because I think a lot of people work, you know, desk jobs, they work mm-hmm. in big corporations and have this fantasy of doing their own thing. And maybe they have an idea, maybe they don't have an idea, but they get paralyzed by that fear of like, there's going to be a paycheck and then there's not going to be a paycheck. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, just the transition itself or why did I? Uh, the, yeah, the transition decide. itself. Because I mean, I'm sure there was some element of, of whether it was fear or uncertainty. Um, how did you sort of um, deal ev- with that? Every day. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I think I have always sort of innately had an entrepreneurial spirit in me um and i i the more i've seen that and the more i speak to people i i do believe you're either sort of naturally an entrepreneur or you're not you're Mm -hmm. naturally a risk taker or you're not um and i mean from when i was a little kid like it was just like throw myself into everything and anything and try it and you know, go to the beat of my own drum and make things work. And, you know, that sort of carried over into like craziness in high school where I was competing nationally with sports and had a special um, schedule at school and then went into college. And I actually ran a huge student organization in college, which was basically like running a a business. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had already had experiences of of running things on my own but coming out of college i went into a a career in television i actually theater was my huge passion Um, and i can give the backstory on that and a family friend of ours um i grew up here in new york city so we knew a lot of broadway people was like look you do not go into broadway to make money you go into broadway once you have money Mm -hmm. so go into television it's you'll learn a lot of the same skills and someday when you've made a lot of money you can come back and produce broadway shows um so uh i was lucky enough to um know someone who knew someone at uh the david letterman at the late show with david letterman um and landed myself a a uh, an audience page gig there uh and i'll give you my whole career track at some point but um, fast forward, I, I ended up there, had a long career in TV and film, um, and then for personal reasons, ended up losing, or not losing, ended up leaving my job. Um, so for me, it was sort of, I, I didn't have this moment of like, I don't want to work for anyone else. Yeah. It was almost like my life sort of kept pushing me in that direction. But because I 
always had this like innate desire to have projects and passion projects. And I wasn't one of those people that was like, someday I'm going to start a company or someday I'm like, it didn't sit with me. It just was part of who I was. I was always like filling my time with these projects. Um, and then, and I think that's key by the way, the distinction, because it's not about like, okay, I'm going to, I really just want to leave my, maybe you're just unhappy with your job and you should be in a different job. Like it shouldn't be about, I just want to leave my job and start something. There should be that idea for what, for what you want to actually do after the jump. And that should, it should be more of a pull than a push. Absolutely. And I, and I talk about that a lot. Like I think there is, especially these days, there's this romanticism. Mm-hmm. Oh, startup culture. It's like startup yeah. culture, starting your own thing, being your own brand. And, you know, I've sit on a lot of panels where I talk about entrepreneurship, and inevitably there's some young person who raises their hand. They're like, what would be your advice if I wanted to start a company? And I go, I always have the same answer don't. <laughs> And then I explain why. Yeah. But but I think that's a great. It's more of a a pull than a push. So so, so what I comes, what comes have, next after you say don't? I'm curious. So what comes next after I say don't? Um, <laughs> don't. I don't want yeah, any competitors. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> um, and I was like, I, I usually ask how old they are, right. and what I say to people a lot is before just jumping into working for yourself. And and just to go back for a second because I think you brought up actually a really good point of just because you're unhappy at your job does not necessarily mean you should go work for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think people, it is a grind to work for someone. I mean, all work is a grind. What I do is a grind. Um, But that, I think that gets mixed up a lot with like, I don't want to work for someone else. And I never had, it wasn't, I didn't start all of this Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to work for anyone else. I started this because I saw a need for what I was starting and I, I couldn't help but do it. Yeah. Um, so with that said, after I say don't, um, I, I usually say if there, if there is something that you are so deeply passionate about that you can't stop thinking about it and you can't sleep at night and you can't live with yourself if you do this, Mm -hmm. um, then, then that's the moment to start considering doing it. But even then, you need to ask yourself, am I willing to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and have no financial stability Mm -hmm. whatsoever? Um, Are you willing to give up any sense of stability in your life? Um, and, And are you ready to take the hard road paired with do I have the experience? Have I worked mm-hmm. for other people long enough or done something where I have the skill set to be the lowest man on the totem pole and the highest man on the totem pole? And, you know, by the time I had started my company, I had done everything from literally handing out tickets and sitting people in the audience of the David Letterman show to waking up at four in the morning to get donuts for an entire production staff at a sitcom to then, you know, working for some of the greatest writers in the world and having a career at CBS, but still getting coffee, but like reviewing budgets of huge TV shows to 
still again getting coffee. But, <laughs> there's a lot of coffee then, in like, New York. Uh, yes, there's a lot of coffee. Um, but uh, every piece of that experience from from getting the coffee to managing huge budgets to being on a production set to producing um, events, all of it, every piece of it was needed for Sweat Life. Mm -hmm. And I am such a believer in people gaining professional experience. It's like why I believe in college. It is learning how to learn. And -hmm. it's not necessarily about... It's not necessarily about what your major is because... You know, sometimes it's applicable and sometimes it's not. Um, So working for someone else is learning how to be a more effective entrepreneur if that is something you want to take. Is that if that's something you want to do? So I, I say, no, don't do it. But if there is something that you are so deeply passionate about, write that down. And then ask yourself the questions. Are you willing to make all the life sacrifices Mm -hmm. that I just listed? Do I have the experience to execute this? If I don't have the experience to execute this, do I have the network of people who can make up for, who can help me execute this? Mm -hmm. Do I maybe have money to build a team? Do I have access to money to raise? It, It takes a lot more than just having an idea. And if you can say yes to all those questions, then go do it. And if if you can afford to keep a roof over your head while you're doing that, if I could go back, um, I would have started Sweat Life with some sort of part-time gig to keep a little bit more mm-hmm. financial security for myself, uh, more for mental health purposes. But it's also just not part of my personality. When I yeah. decide to do something, I just fucking do it all in i'm all in so um so yeah a very long answer to your question this podcast is made for long answers so but but what what was the moment of like i was done working for other people that wasn't it for me it wasn't about being done working Mm -hmm. for other people it was i need to go do this and i don't see a company doing it so once you i think for a lot of people it can feel like they get so focused on the idea and then starting the company that it's like, all right, what about day two, you know? Um, and in the startup world in particular, there's a lot of, uh, there's a concept that you'll hear a lot about sort of called, people will call it the dip. And it's that part at the beginning, once you start something where maybe that, you know, you get a lot of momentum in the beginning, mm-hmm. like word of mouth, social media, but then the buzz kind of dies down and then it's on you to keep it going. And I think that's a make or break moment for a lot of companies and, a very um it's a pivotal moment because you have to ask yourself is does this dip mean it's failing and i should get out or is this the time when i need to hold strong and and you know we're gonna we're gonna just get better and better from here was there a point after you started sweat life where you know maybe it could have been like after episode like four i don't know um where it was just you know things got a little more quiet and it was like okay do i keep doing this or is this going to be successful i'm curious if there was a moment like that and if there was what you did to sort of just like power through it yeah um there were countless moments countless moments um and those dips don't it's not like you have that one dip those dips happen daily Mm. you put out an article you know we would put out uh we have we had 12 verticals of, of written content and episode every week, uh, social media. And 
every one of those is a baby. Every one of those is something you put work into and some things would stick and go viral and some things three people would look at. Um, And it makes you constantly pivot. Um, And I think that's been a big moment for me that that's changed when, and and then yes, you have these moments where it's like, it it wasn't necessarily that it's like we suddenly went quiet or the buzz Mm -hmm. died down. I, I do think we were lucky in the fact that the buzz sort of just continued to build and the more people that were writing for us and sharing more more people and brands and wanted to work with us mm-hmm. um but it was more every, everyday dips um of 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 what is working and what is sticking and and, and yes there were also months or weeks where it's like the money wasn't coming in and I was worried about paying my staff and paying myself and you know when I started Sweat Life there was a few other similar publications Mm -hmm. um well and good obviously head of the I'd say top of the market for that game Mind Body Green Greatest um to name a few Goop wasn't even around yet um, so there's a constant game of comparison, first of all, but, um, you know, I, I, I did have these moments of like, what, what am I doing? Like you see the cash flow go out and, um, did you have an initial, did you have investment in sweat life or did you bootstrap it? Just uh, so on? I did, I did, I was lucky. Um, I, I, I always assumed I would go to business school and, um, I'm very lucky to come from a very supportive family of Megan's and um, you know I, I what I love about my family is you were never allowed to take any of it for granted and I'm the youngest of five siblings all who work wow. incredibly hard and um, so we were given a lot but we were expected to do a lot with what we were given so let's i'm, I'm putting a pin in the yeah because i also did the, i totally didn't answer yeah the no question. no well you mentioned um, working with brands and that's something i actually want to come back to but okay. since you're talking about family and, and growing up let's let's go back there because i'm curious about where the sort of entrepreneurial spirit sort of came from and and also i think for people listening who are you know inspired by what you're saying i think it's always interesting to know the backstory um where did you grow up what did your childhood look like um, so I grew up right here in New York City. So I was a city kid. Please wow. don't judge. Are you like, I think you're like the only person in New York who's actually from New York City. <laughs> there's actually like nine of us. Um, no, there's actually a good amount. I always say it's it's the um, smallest uh, smallest town in America within the largest city in the world. Because um, the, the people who actually grew up here, it does feel like a bit of a small town. Um, so yes, I grew up on the Upper West Side. Uh, I am a normal functioning human being. I have ten fingers and ten toes, and is that uh, all it takes? I have a heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have a heart and soul. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up on the Upper West Side. I uh, went to Ethical Culture, which is right on Sixty Third and um, and Central Park West. It's a very progressive school. I think so much of what defines me is my education. Um, and I can go into that, my love for, for ethical and, and ethics background and ethical culture in general. Um, 
but uh, I come from a big booming family. Um, I was the youngest of five. Um, we were split between two litters. My mom was married before my dad. Okay. Um, As an only child, I have to ask, what is that like, having five, four uh, siblings? It's the best. It's the best. You know, there, there was a bit of an age gap because my mom was married before my dad, mm-hmm. so my three older siblings are quite a bit older. Um, so we would overlap. I grew up here in the city. God, I'm going to sound like the most pretentious kid ever when you hear this so please don't judge until I then go into my family that's to the audience um, but we, we grew up with a, a lake house an hour north um, where we would go every weekend and during the summers um, but by the time I was like five my older siblings were in college mm. so it's not like we were all jammed into the apartment but it's it's the best I you know I, I don't know any difference it's like right. when people ask what is it like to grow up in New York City like I can give my theories but like I don't know any different um, and you grow up quickly and you're independent really quickly and you're exposed to a lot um, I think having older siblings is this push-pull of of constantly playing a game of keep up mm-hmm. and having these four people who just beat on you and push you and pick on you and it just makes you kind of tough and scrappy but there are also these four people that have your back on such a deep level Mm -hmm. um, and still to this day so have my back Um, and they still challenge me and they still push me and I've taken a very different path than any of them Um, but um, I, I feel like I have always had this ingrained support system um and that support system also are the people who make me push myself and question everything i do good and bad sometimes (laughs) um but but it's fun you know i'm a big believer in siblings i think from the beginning you, you learn how to deal with people you learn conflict resolution you Um, learn how to share you learn how to speak up in a big loud boisterous crew you um, learn that sometimes people are going to be better than you at things you learn sometimes you're going to be a lot better than other people at things and that's going to elicit reactions or effects on your relationships with them and so how do you manage being proud of your own accomplishments and skills without hurting the people around you Mm -hmm. and being supportive of theirs. So there's just so many dynamic lessons that I think come out of being part of a big family. Um, That's interesting. You mentioned how, how do you um, sort of celebrate those accomplishments without inadvertently putting other people down before we started recording, we were talking about social media and how it can posts can come off as, you know, pretty obnoxious sometimes. Um, and you question the motivation behind the post itself mm-hmm. when it's someone celebrating an achievement or something. Um, just the tone you use sometimes can can totally affect like how people will respond to that, whether they'll respond by supporting you or by being actually turned away. It's, it's interesting. It, it is interesting. It's very interesting. And I, I mean, I don't know if you want to go down the social media path now um, um, or I sure. can finish. But yeah, so you know, to finish like you... on the family <laughs> exactly. and, and like how that tied into me being an entrepreneur. Sorry, guys, if you are clinking, that's me putting my tea down. This tea is um, delicious. Can you can you just share what's in it? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, I w- might need to look at the box, but it's... Uh, we also have <laughs> our own cups. We're not like sharing a cup of tea. <laughs> oh, little do you know that I... 
I licked the rim of that. That was really creepy. Sorry, <laughs> That's what guys. that is. Um, so it's called puka tea, um, and it's cinnamon, cardamom, and something else. It's their revitalized tea. I drink it all day. Um, so good. It's it's so heartwarming. I feel revitalized. Yes, it's very revitalizing. On this rainy um, day. So that's the tea we're drinking. Um, but so I came from. My father's a doctor, uh, and he has his own practice. And I think he's a very entrepreneurial spirit as well. And most doctors have to be, mm. um, especially if you go into private practice. People are just like, "Oh, he's a doctor," but like, really, he's an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother. Uh, was not working traditionally when uh, she was an actress and a dancer and a model. She oh, wow. actually was a mime. Um, so she had a she has crazy interesting stories. A mime, but yeah, wow, yeah, she was incredibly talented and incredibly beautiful. Um, but even that is a very like untraditional entrepreneurial path. So mm-hmm. so maybe that was just in my blood. She started in improv theater school when I was a kid, Um, again, entrepreneurial. Um, But, uh, you know, I think we were, I'm not a huge fan of people just being told, you can do whatever you put your mind to. It's sort of like saying like, yes, go start a company. Like you can do whatever you put your mind to, but you have to work for that. Like it takes work. Um, So I think I was very lucky to have you know from a young age I literally wanted to do everything I was like this week is ice skating lessons and I want to learn how to do magic and I you know I played baseball with my brothers and I was like I want to be in the Nutcracker and my mom's like okay that means you have to get into the school of American Ballet I'm like cool can I audition she like found out about auditions and I got into the school of American Ballet wow and did not know that yeah, when I was I was eight when I got in, I stayed until I was thirteen or fourteen when they told me that my hips didn't turn out in the way that they should. Uh. <laughs> but I also was starting to compete in other sports, and I would have actually had to leave my school and go to their school. Um, but yes, I I peaked at at around thirteen when I had performed for a few years in the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center. It all went downhill after that. <laughs> um, but I had these parents who who said yes. They constantly said yes to my many adventures. And it sort of set me up in this mindset of like, if I'm willing to work for it, I can I can do all of these things. And I think that sort of set the course for everything else I do of like anything that would pop into my head, which is a lot of things. I It instilled this belief in me that I could make it happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is so. That is so cool. So you, I think you just said you ended up performing in the Nutcracker. I did. I did. You made yeah. it. Wow. I did. So that was that was very very cool. I have performed at Lincoln Center. Um, if you saw me take a dance class now, you will throw your phone at this very moment and be like, "She's lying. <laughs> she can't dance." That so person (laughs) that that person um i think you should give yourself more credit than that but one of the things that i i um wanted to circle back to and it has nothing to do with where we just ended up right now is you mentioned working with brands yes and you know when you were uh still working on um for working for other people you were you know event coordinators you were did like sponsorship stuff i think when you were um at tribeca film Mm -hmm. you were a sponsorship coordinator as well Mm -hmm. and then obviously with sweat life you you've worked with like 
loads of brands and like not little mom and pop stores like we're talking like nike under armor new balance like what was it like clip bar atleta i mean the list goes on what's your strategy for successfully working with brands like this to getting them to first of all getting their attention second of all getting them to see the value in what you're trying to put in front of them and ultimately getting them to you know give you their money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this was certainly an evolution that it, maybe it just sort of naturally came to me. Um, so the, uh, working with brands and how we decide, how we started to work with brands um, goes back a little into how I decided to structure the sweat life. Um, so when I started the sweat life, I was someone who actually didn't, I came from traditional media and I actually didn't ingest a lot of digital media at that point. I didn't consume it. So, um, I, ironically then I decided to start a digital media company and I literally don't even like read anything online. Um, and part of it was, I felt like every time I'd go to a website, it was like someone was throwing up information on, in my face with no rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. And coming from, you know, my degree is in, uh, English and creative writing and I'm classically trained in, in writing. And then I had this career in TV and film, um, I, you know, I believe in the art of storytelling and I believe in there being a beginning, middle and an end to things. So I was like, I don't just want there to be a beginning, middle and end to our articles, but to the entire site. I want it to feel like someone is opening up a newspaper mm. and reading it from start to finish. Um, so how do we do that? We're releasing these weekly episodes. Um, and then how, how do we create cohesion through the site. So I, I made a decision that every week we would come up with a theme. Um, and this was also just, I was like, how, what are ways that I can make it as easy as possible? I had hired um, an editorial director, Jamie, um, at that point. Hi, Jamie, if you're listening. Um, you better be listening, Jamie. And, I don't even know you. <laughs> um, so I had hired Jamie at that point, but I also, you know, how do I make this structurally easy so we know the direction that we are building our content every single week and not just like randomly following trends or throwing all that stuff against the wall so i came up with the idea of having a theme every week and the theme was based on whatever the episode was so if we were doing flywheel their tagline is never coast so that would become our theme Mm. for the week so in our fitness section it was how to never coast through your workout and that would tie into food and, and health and every everything came back to this theme of, of Never Coast. So we had these themes every week. So when we started working with brands, um, you know, we'd do the traditional, like, I think it was once our, our social media and our viewership got to a, a certain point, we were able to start like I remember getting like my first $200 post and I was like oh my god (laughs) made it oh my god this like random protein company in Nebraska gave me $200 like this is so exciting um but we did actually start I was lucky enough to start with big brands from the beginning I had some relationships but I the reason I told you about this theme is I had set up the perfect recipe for sponsored content Mm. and sponsored content was just really starting to have its high point. Like traditional advertising of banner ads and ad placement just 
was was starting to fall away. Um, so as we were learning how to get a sponsor attached to a particular episode or a blog post or um, or a social media post, I was like, wait a second, Athleta is doing a huge push for power of she. We can just make that our theme for the next two weeks and sell Athleta across the entire board of Sweat Life and it will feel completely authentic mm-hmm. to our readers. And it won't take away from our journalistic integrity. It won't take away from our authentic Sweat Life voice. We can still tell all the same stories. And so we started to do that. And I put a deck together of, of reaching out to brands and being like, look, we can create a video episode for you and you can put pre-roll at the beginning of it and we will have 12 verticals of content that all tie back to wow. your theme. And so very quickly we were getting these big sponsorship tickets um, from big brands and and then it, it sort of tumbles from there where um, you know someone will see we're working with Adidas and then mm-hmm. a certain food brand will work out and uh, or or well reach out sorry mm-hmm. not work out um, everyone's working out so so I sort of unintentionally set set us up for success. When it comes to general rules of, of working with brands, and I'm, I'm starting a new platform, which we can talk about um, at some point, which also needs me to reach out and work with brands a lot. Um, you know, I think, I think it really depends. I think, first of all, bu- build relationships. Relationships matter. Mm-hmm. Everyone I work with at brands, I don't just call on them. I, I really get to know them. Um, What's like one tactic that you've used successfully? To, to let's say it's a brand you want to work with that or a brand you have worked with and you you just flat out did not know anyone there um, I mean you I really believe in the power of network and connections so if I don't know someone there someone I know probably knows someone there and it's going to be a lot more effective for you as Dean to um, reach out to someone that you might know at Under Armour mm-hmm. um, and for me to email you and be like, hey, do you know anyone at Under Armour that you can introduce me to? You do. They know you personally. They trust you. And therefore, there's a little bit more connection as to me just randomly reaching out to that person. Mm-hmm. So use your network. And if you don't have a network, put effort into building a network. Uh, no, not only is this a support system, um, so a brand I've never worked with, I, I always try to go via someone I know. Um, you know, at this point, I have worked with enough brands and Sweat Life as a brand has a reputation. Um, so I, it's even cold reach out is not incredibly cold, but, but use that. The other thing, I use LinkedIn. If you don't know how to use your network and you're not on something like LinkedIn, um, you can search LinkedIn and see who has connections to what company. So that's just like a little tip. Um, the other su- success points that I've found with brands is really learning what they do as a brand. Mm-hmm. And that actually starts even before. So a rule we made at Sweat Life, I would not work with any brand that I, in particular in like the food and beauty space that I would not be willing to put in or on my body. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I had a huge issue with 
and this goes back to when I started the sweat life and why I started the sweat life that you know I'd open a traditional women's health magazine and read an article about the importance of you know or breast cancer let's say it was about breast cancer prevention and why it's important to get mammograms and get checkups and then I'd flip the page and see an ad for a sugar-filled non-organic yogurt Mm -hmm. and dairy company and sugar and dairy are hugely tied in with the cause of female cancers um and i can get nerdy and sciencey about that but to me that felt so backwards how are we on one one page educating women and on the next page taking money from companies that are causing that exact disease that we're trying to educate them to to prevent yeah it it just made no sense to me so i we made a huge rule i said i don't care if it makes us make less money i will not take money from these brands so immediately the brands we were working with i could get behind Mm -hmm. and i could get behind fully and i could get behind authentically um so that i think sets up for success because i think the brand can feel that um and and, and, and to your point by the way of working of of learning about the brand first that's it actually works the other way as well like i can absolutely confirm like from an editorial standpoint you know like when we have publicists or brands pitching us brands or experiences or products so often and really like 80 percent, i'd say even of the pitches that i get it's like hey check out our cool new product um we'd love for you to write about it or you know this is a kind of a quote like what they think at least is like a newsworthy thing like oh, i would love coverage and i would love to say uh what my response always is but truth is you can't there are so many that at that level that you just you cannot yeah. respond to everyone um but what I do tell people who I do respond to is it's on you to first figure out how this pitch fits into our publication. Like, like not to sound, you know, condescending, but like, tell me what this story should be about. More important, tell me what the value is for our reader. Because sure, you've got a cool new brand of, I don't know, sweatpants, like athletic wear. Um, And that's a weird example, but pretty common. And (laughs) like, sure i'd love to receive a sample like absolutely i'll wear it like great um but when it comes to coverage what makes them special what makes them different how about oh i noticed that every month you do a roundup of like the nine coolest insert you know clothing item here watches or this or that i thought this would be like a great pick for that page can i send it to you to get your thoughts that's a better pitch than like here's my product do something with it give me coverage a hundred and 50,000%. The amount of emails that I get of pitches from publicists, from brands that first of all, they don't even get my name right. So they've clearly like copied and pasted and they'll be like, "Dear Sarah." I'm like, "And my name is Allie." What's your okay. editor? What's your I'm writer? Like, why did you not just look at my byline? Like it's it's as simple as that. Yeah. Um but but yes, they've clearly just not done their homework, and I I will just automatically they clearly don't know who we are. I they they have not come up with any idea of how we could work together or why it's relevant, and that's an automatic no for me. So it, it applies exactly mm-hmm. the other way around. It actually applies to everything. Like if you're applying for a job, do your homework on the company. Do your homework on the person that you're reaching out to. Totally. Um, 
you know, I could use a million examples in life where this is uh, important, but working with brands that is highly important. Um, get to know the brand, get to know the people behind the brand, look at where they're putting their money, look at other campaigns that it's easy to see. I mean, you, you literally can browse the internet and you can ingest digital, <laughs> digital media, which at this point I do. Um, but so I do my homework on even brands that I have relationships with, who are they working with right now? What are they putting efforts into? If And if that's not public knowledge, I set up phone calls on a regular basis or meetings or when people are I know are going to be in town, even if I don't have something for them right then, it's great for me to hear like, what's up with Cliff Bar right now? Like, what are you guys working on? What's, what's the next year looking like? And that mm-hmm. sets me up for if there's something that's happening with Sweat Life or Talent Hack, which I'm going to tell you about, um, Cliff Bar, oh, this would be a great fit for them. Um, and so it, it's it's real relationship building. And from there, the, the money comes. But it has to be an authentic relationship and an authentic fit. And you have to find a way to represent that brand in a way where they feel you are really representing the brand. Totally. Now you mentioned Talent Hack and it's something we should definitely cover because I know you're excited about it. I am. So I'm so excited. Let's just let's just go right there. Um, so Talent Hack. Uh, Talent Hack is going to be or is, we're in beta, um, the first ever job marketplace for the fitness industry. Wow. Um, it, it's got another element. I'd like to say it's like monster.com meets LinkedIn for the fitness industry. Um, but digitally, we're not LinkedIn. You don't have open profiles. Um, but it's it was actually founded by Alexandra Bonetti, who owns the Bari studio and came mm. out of a came out of her own struggles with hiring talent. And she has this incredibly popular, uh, studio here in New York City and uh, it's a little dance based um, so a lot of her instructors are former dancers actually and shot some video with one of their instructors uh, Madeline oh uh, she's awesome yeah their instructors are just amazing it was at a surf lodge uh, yeah that was pretty cool pretty cool huh? yeah. yeah they do they do a surf lodge series every summer um, but so when Alexandra was going to hire talent this years ago she would post on Indeed or Monster or Craigslist or she would like literally print out flyers and put them in different dance studios around the city. And she was like, there is so much talent. Why is it so hard for me to find them? Mm-hmm. That how like Why is there not a place where I can just find fitness talent? Um, so light bulb mm-hmm. moment for her. Um, fast forward a few years later, um, or maybe it was like a year later um, and she came to me and she's like I have this idea and I want to do it with you um, so she pitched the idea to me and I was like I love this but my plate is so full with sweat life right now mm-hmm. I would love to help you in any way shape or form but like financially there, there's just a lot of reasons I, I can't do this right now um, Fast forward another year, and and we can talk about this. And I, I was at a moment with Sweat Life where, that you had asked earlier of like, at what point do I keep going with this and try to get more money, or is is it time to pivot? Mm-hmm. Is it is it time to put this to bed or 
or change what this looks like. Um, and the, I was starting to work on Talent Hack part-time and the more I was working on it, I just fell in love with it. And one of the privileges that I had during Sweat Life was I got to know everyone in the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably thousands of you out there that are like, I've never met you. You don't know everyone. <laughs> so in New York City, you know, everyone from all the studio owners yeah. to the trainers to the... And um, I, I really just fell in love with our community. And I think part of my decision with Sweat Life, separate from this, was... You know, when I started Sweat Life, I, I didn't see a voice that was needed mm -hmm. in in the health space, really talking to people about getting healthy for the sake of feeling good, mm -hmm. not for dropping a dress size or not for getting your bikini body, um, but for feeling our best selves now um, so that we hopefully set ourselves up for the best success not to get diseases like cancer, which I lost my mom to, and that was a big part of me starting this. Um, so that was needed at that time, but by the time I hit about this year, last year, there, there were some really wonderful outlets, and even the mainstream outlets, I think everything has shifted to a more wellness conversation. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I felt like we had done the job we needed to do. I was just sort of adding more noise, um, and I wasn't making as much, you know, a word that matters a lot to me in everything I do is impact. Mm -hmm. What is the impact that I am making? And while I am very proud still of what we put out there with Sweat Life and I hope that it makes an impact on the world and you know our readers and the people who even are listening to this, um, it felt like it was losing that, that feeling of impact. Mm -hmm. And I started to, to see the potential impact with Talent Hack. Um, and instead of creating more noise and more content about this industry it felt more impactful to create a tool that would help this industry run better i think that's so impressive just to sort of stop you there because sweat life is something that like it's you right like it's you put yourself into that thing and to be able to step back and say there's this other thing now that i feel there's more of a need for um you know maybe sweat life has like you were saying like it's accomplished what you set out to accomplish I think for a lot of people, it's it's hard to sort of detach yourself like that. Um, I know you're not totally detached from sweat life yet, but like, you know, there's there's an ego component, and like people associate associate you with it, and to be able to say this was out here for a reason, and it's it's achieved its goal, and now it's time to move on to the next thing. I think that's um, that's you know, I respect for that because it's a lot of people I think would would sit on a sinking ship which is not what the sweat line is, but you know, they would sit on a sinking ship because it has their name on the side. Right. And to be able to see, well, like, well, actually, that, that smaller boat over there has potential yeah. to, uh, to achieve better things. You know, I, I, would be, I would be lying, and I, I, appreciate, um, I appreciate that, but I would be lying if I didn't say it, it wasn't a tough decision. And even when we started to make the decision to sort of pull sweat life back from being this large all-encompassing media platform to being something a bit smaller and more bite-sized um it was a tough decision and there was a period where i felt like i had failed mm -hmm. and 
I really struggled with that and you know seeing these new platforms that had started after us and seemingly taking off and it, it was actually a very tough moment um, and it wasn't until I started to dig into talent hack where I, I had that moment of maybe everything that I had done up until this point built up to talent hack mm-hmm. and and you're right Sweat Life isn't going anywhere and I'd love it to, to have many iterations and it's in iteration like six that's something by the way all of you out there should learn everything you do will iterate a million times over and pivot and and this was a huge learning lesson for me for me of this was a learning moment for me of taking what felt like a failure and turning it into a success and seeing it as a moment of not failure but pivot mm-hmm. and and I had to have done sweat life for the last five years or I couldn't become the CEO of talent hack and it's also like you were saying before everything consolidates so all of I think you mentioned before that all of the jobs that you had had before doing sweat life you know you, you learned various things along the way that ultimately culminated in you being able to be like you know at least at the beginning like a one-man show uh, a one-woman show um and then but that's not the end of the story like then things you learned at sweat life combined with all the other things before it to then help you be better at, at talent, talent hack and then you know the talent hack is going to inform the thing that you do after that and it's like yes. it's this constant yes. sort of like sort of picking up what's useful discarding what's not um it is and it's and it's a great it's such a it's such an important thing for people to be aware of because when things don't pan out and they won't whether it, maybe your job will always pan out but like you know i i was someone i'm such a type a person i've always wanted to be in control of things and i literally used to like write the script of my life and then when it wouldn't follow that it's like i would set myself up for disappointment um and i had a a major year where i lost my mother i lost one of my best friends six weeks later and i lost the man i thought i was going to marry a few weeks after that and all of my life as i knew it had blown up in my face and it was this moment of like i cannot control anything and you know there's this great saying of people make plans and god laughs <laughs> um, and and it's very true but it's it is important to have this insight because when you have these moments where things are not working out as expected or something has seemingly fallen apart or it feels like you failed at something you haven't it is just going to lead to the next thing and even the learning how to fail and learning how to fall and get back up will set you up for greater success so embrace 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 those moments they are some of the most beautiful moments in life um so with that preach said talent hack so talent hack is its most basic core is a job marketplace think of monster.com if you are a fitness professional and you are looking for a job this is the place to find it. Um, awesome. There's such a need. There is such, you know, that I mean, our industry just needs this. Um, and I think because we had this crazy boom in the last seven years in this industry, there's no professional infrastructure mm-hmm. and we need it. We need tools. We need a job marketplace. We need a place for 
networking for the professionals in this space. We need professional development. Um, we need industry standards. I was just going to say there need to be more standards, standards as well because pay of yeah, or, or certifications certifi- as well. Exa- because how how many times have yes. you seen like a trendy gym? You go there and you see. Them. So you guys are at home. I have my hands in the air of basically <laughs> saying Dean preach. It's like you're helping like a Boeing like move into the hangar right now. Like that's your arms yeah. are up like. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, how often have you seen like a new gym on the scene and it's getting all the buzz and you go and you train there and you're like, wow, that trainer literally did not have a certification. Like, forget CSCS, like nothing, no ACE, nothing. no, like nothing. They, maybe, maybe they came up with a concept, but it could be a totally baseless concept. And maybe it's like, you're doing circuit training and the third station is like deadlifts and people have never done a deadlift in their life. And meanwhile, there's like, disco lighting going on and it's like a pitch black room and it's like and there's 60 people and they're like half of them don't even know how to squat properly right and i'm and there's an instructor yelling at you like squat deeper yeah (laughs) and it's not like they can see that person in the corner who's like knees are going over their toes and they're gonna like bust their hips if they keep doing that so i think by um creating something like talent hack what i think will happen as a, a positive side effect is that um you'll have people looking at each other's profiles and being like oh i get to step up my game Mm -hmm. because you know maybe there is even a i don't know obviously i haven't seen it yet but maybe there is a section like a part of the about where it's like what are your certifications yeah i mean that's important so it is so one thing to note so while i said it's linkedin um the profiles are actually at the moment private okay and so it's it is again monster.com where you can see the jobs and the opportunities and it's not just jobs you know a huge part of when we talked about working with brands fitness talent especially trainers hustle harder than anyone i've ever known they have the most insane schedule they get up beyond early they go to bed late they have this physical job where they are having to work out all day they are giving themselves over mentally emotionally and physically to rooms full of people or or personal training clients um and and a lot of them can't even support themselves and so it is important we we want to set people up for success for other opportunities as well such as working with brands but to do that you need to learn the tools with social media and so there's going to be um job opportunities but just any opportunity in the space whether it be a hotel chain that's looking for trainers to like come for the season to St. Bart's or if Nike is looking for new ambassadors or ASICS wants to do a photo shoot um or just listing every you know most fitness professionals get discounts at at athletic wear stores and they mm-hmm. don't know about it um so it's sort of a marketplace to know what all the opportunities are but the reason we're keeping the profiles private for now is fitness is also a funny little industry where there's a lot of non-compete mm-hmm. um and we wanted to protect trainers okay. that if they wanted to be able to see what else was out there and also have access to our networking events our professional development um our professional development workshops, uh, everything that we're planning to do, we want them to have access to that, even if they're not looking for a job and not get in trouble with their bosses and not worry about that. Eventually that might switch, because I agree, I think from this standard section, or from this standard point of view, um, 
But when you make your profile, it asks for certifications. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think the standards need to go. The standards need to go up on all sides. There's a very low barrier to entry. I think there's been this move to um, starting to value someone's social media presence mm-hmm. over education. Yep. Which is crazy to me. And I understand that you need to market your business, but you are in the business of health. Mm-hmm. Even if you are the trendiest sort of nightclub-y experiential workout, that you're still leading people through an hour, maybe once a week, maybe every day, of what they are doing with their bodies. Doctors have to go through years and years and years of training to deal with people's bodies, but yet physical trainer or uh, trainers, instructors, people who are who are leading people's health in just as an important way somehow the level of education has been it's it's just too basic and it's too low barrier to entry and because the industry is so sought after now there is an opportunity i think to to raise the standards on that but i think there's also an opportunity to raise the standards on what people are getting paid and mm-hmm. insurance and benefits and and even if their employer is not going to give it to them for us to teach them what they need how to get access to it and hopefully broker better deals i always say it's almost like we're starting a union without starting a union um and the other big piece of this which i will bring which i will just touch on is networking something that I was lucky through Sweat Life is I, as I said, got to know everyone in the industry. And something that really hit me was I know everyone, but they don't know each other. Like how do these fitness trainers not know each other? They have the same exact job. And I think it's for many reasons. First of all, their schedules are just insane. So they're not going to make the time to just have random meetups with each other. But I think particularly here in New York, it is such an intense and competitive industry mm-hmm. that they are just set into this mindset that that's not my colleague and that's not my peer that's my competitor yeah so you know i mean i guess keep your enemies close and your enemies closer but like <laughs> we are your friends close enemies closer um but we've started to do and it's also for our recruiting purposes but these weekly lunches where we just bring 15 to 25 trainers into a room and for us we just we want to hear what matters most to them because we will not build a successful platform in talent hack for the industry if it is not built off of the the feedback of what the industry needs. Totally. And just the power of what happens in this room of 25 trainers in a safe space being able to have a million me too moments and not in a sexual harassment way of like, oh my God, you deal with that? And, and they, it's people who have the same schedule and the same struggles and and they finally are getting to connect with each other and support each other it is so beautiful it it's like i get i get emotional off of it sometimes i'm I'm right there with you um i mean we had what was it um towards the end of last year we had our first the inaugural men's health open which was like a big fitness competition and i overheard some one one trainer talking to another and it was such a like click moment where they said you know, we all only know each other from Instagram. Yes. And uh, yes. for everyone to like be in the same room, like that was just so cool. Like, yes, they were competing physically, but they weren't competing like for a job, right? Right. Um, 
and yeah super cool i i totally get it. i feel like they're it's the biggest community that isn't actually a community correct um i want to switch gears for a second yes. and this might be related to talent hack but it doesn't have to be at all you can think even bigger picture what's a challenge that you're currently dealing with and and how are you working to overcome it what is a challenge that i am currently dealing with um well my ovaries are shriveling up should we talk about that <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just sorry, guys. I have a very dry sense of humor. Um, I think a, a challenge that I've always, always, always dealt with is because I am someone who feels like I need to fill my time all the time, um, is finding balance um, and the balance between sweat life and talent hack is, uh, is just tough. And how do I excel continue to excel in both these things that matter so much to me and continue to push my career forward with a not without a burning myself out mm -hmm. and b carving out time for my personal life and it actually ties into my ovaries shriveling up i'm 36 and single and um you know i'm very passionate about what i do career-wise and i do wonder if sometimes especially being an entrepreneur and being on this constant roller coaster with my professional life and I throw so much of myself into that do am I setting up enough stability or even time or space for my personal life to flourish and I have wonderful friends and a wonderful family um, so finding that balance is a struggle because I love what I do so much I just could work every day um, all day and I do a lot of the time. Um, and I'd say a second thing that, I wouldn't say it's a struggle, but it's a constant struggle since I've, I, since I started Sweat Life is balancing the pressure of being a public persona. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not a public persona in the way that I'm an actress or, you know, it's me, it's really me. And I'm very proud of, what I'm a public persona for, which is basically like empowering people to live their healthiest, happiest lives. Um, but there is this pressure of constantly sharing everything that I do. And, and there's something fun about it and naturally comes to me and I do it, but there are moments that I just want to eat my food and not take a picture of it. Or, and you do sort of feel like you're, like, oh my God, I haven't posted today. I haven't put anything up. and yep. Or now that I'm starting a new company, like I'm at a computer a lot of the day. Um, and that's not as exciting as when I was running around trying every single workout. Um, and how many photos of my computer with a cup of tea can I share? Um, and what makes it worse is like, you know, we, we have the data, like we know that posting daily is essential yes. for engagement and yes. for picking up those new followers yes and you can say whatever you want and take whatever stand you want to about you know well i don't want to be oversharing or i don't want to be on social media all the time but the fact is if you don't you know if you aren't doing daily posts you're not going to get the same engagement and you have to be okay with knowing that when you go to bed at night like yeah. i i did not put something out there today um and i'm gonna have slightly less reach than than i would have had yes so it's hard. It is hard. It is hard because it is a job and it does it does make money and I have to respect that. Um, what I find crazy is when people have like 
no sort of business or even loosely professional reason to be like posting three times a day and literally Instagram storying like their their everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it's like all right, cool. So yeah. I, I know your life. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, look, whatever, <laughs> I, I always say, like, whatever floats your boat, and who knows if they're trying to, to want to become a personality, or they just love sharing. I think, you know, there is an element of social media, it's sort of the the good and evil of it. The good of it is that, you know, it connects, it, it creates a connective tissue globally that I think didn't exist before, and there's so many wonderful people I've connected with through that medium, um, and, and I think in a lot of ways it creates this support system on both sides. You know, I get a lot of reach out from people who say that they feel less alone in their journey because I've shared about what it's like to lose a parent mm -hmm. and I've shared about the struggles of being an entrepreneur, um, and just like every, everyday challenges. Um, and I think then people it's almost like they have this public friend to feel less lonely and and it goes both ways there are moments where I share something and I get all of these messages of support back and and it's real they're yeah. like little digital hugs and and I really appreciate that but I think that can also be dangerous of course no but you know what it's not just a hunch like it is a hit of dopamine like when you see that like or why do you think people end up checking their phones like yeah however many times a day yeah. like an obscene like number obscene. of times and we all end up doing it like we do. i'm not above it and i'm sure i'm sure you do it as well oh i do i totally um, do there's a reason it's it actually is a hit of dopamine it is but i think it that's it's a little dangerous but like you were saying it, exactly it can be abused it can be it dangerous. can be abused and it can also i think it can be dangerous for people's mental health i think first of all you like you said how many you know you get that little hit of dopamine when you see a like but people I, I think it's gotten to a point where it's like people equate their self-worth mm -hmm. with you know how popular they are on on Instagram or how many friends they have on Facebook and it's actually starting to define the way people feel about themselves or they see these curated versions of people's lives off on glamorous vacations and wearing clothes and like First of all, it's not real life, but there, it becomes this ultimate game of comparison, mm -hmm. um, which I think can send you down a real dangerous rabbit hole. And I think the other real danger of it is all of that starting to replace real in-person connections. And even what we were talking about with Talent Hack of like all of these trainers being digitally connected via social media, but you know, you see the power of what happens when you get them physically in a room and face to face and actually interacting with each other it, it's so powerful so it is scary to me and important for me to preach this that these digital connections don't end up fully replacing uh in-person connections totally now so what i asked you about before was um you know a challenge you're facing you talked about balance right yes what are some ways that you stay balanced i I read somewhere you had, um, I think it might have been a, a Q&A on, on Sweaty Betty, um, where you said sleep, meditation, and movement every day. Can you expand a bit on that? I mean, movement, okay, working out, you know, I'm sure I know you, you run, you do yoga. I'm curious about sleep and meditation, um, whether it's 
a way that you found to in, whether it's increase the quality of your sleep, a way that you've um, sort of learned how to maybe convince yourself to go to bed a bit earlier, or wake up earlier, and then also with meditation, I'm curious about what your daily practice looks like. Right. Um, so I used to be someone, maybe it was because I was raised by a father who's a doctor and doctors literally are trained to not sleep. It's like a badge of honor of like how, how many days in a row can you go without sleeping? And like sleeping was like seen as a weakness. And I think cause I had this insane schedule as a kid, like I never, like we didn't have bedtimes and then oh, I was awesome. this like crazy, <laughs> uh, I was like this crazy competitive athlete in all the, these sports. So I was like getting up at 3.30 in the morning to ride horses before school so that I could play sports after school. And um, so getting like three, four hours of sleep in high school, like I never learned healthy sleeping patterns. And I was, and I think a lot of people still, especially New Yorkers, have, I hear it all the time from people of like, how are you doing? Oh my God, I'm so busy. I'm so tired. And it's just like, it's, it's like an automatic response Mm -hmm. and a huge shift in my life. Like one of the biggest shifts in my life was when I started to prioritize sleep. Um, I, I can't really tell you the moment it happened. I think it was gradual, but I, I cannot function. I'm not, I thought I used to be a high functioning person Mm. on three, four hours of sleep. But now that I know how I function on seven or eight hours of sleep, I'm not functioning on all cylinders at three or four. And are there times where I need to just go on the three or four? Sure. But that's one, maybe two nights in a row. And then I, I have, I have to get sleep. And I am so much more productive. I'm happier. My mood is better. I'm healthier. I don't get sick. I'm more active when I prioritize sleep and I get that good sleep. So how have I made that happen? I I literally prioritize sleep in the way that I would prioritize anything else. So if I don't, you know, my schedule can be very unpredictable. And I know there's a lot of people that say it's so important to go to bed at the same time every day and wake up every day. It's not possible always. Mm-hmm. For, so what can I control best is the amount of sleep I get. So if I end up having to stay up later than I'd want to, and I have something really early the next morning, if it's cancelable, cancelable, <laughs> I will cancel it. So I can get the amount of sleep that I need and reschedule that because sleep has to be a priority. If I'm able to go to bed early one night, I will do it. If I'm doing something in the evening that is not, you know, whether it be social or that, you know, there's, there's really no reason to stay another hour, keep doing it another hour, I will cut it off. And go home and go to sleep so I can get that sleep. Um, or if I if I know I have something the next morning that's not movable, I just don't make evening plans. Mm-hmm. And I make sure that... I, so I literally just like the most important meeting that you would never skip. That is how I see sleep. Um, and it has changed my life. I love that. It's, it's similar to the idea of um, you know scheduling personal time on your calendar as if you were scheduling a meeting. Like actually putting it as a calendar invite yes. and accepting it, sending it yourself and accepting it yourself. Like yes. I have a meeting with myself and this cannot be moved. Um, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And then what about meditation? That's something you mentioned 
do you have a sort of is it like a morning thing for you is it whenever you can you know what, what does that look like so i'm a big believer that meditation comes in many shapes and forms um so my brother is actually a meditation teacher and wow. a meditative healer um so he is he was the person who taught me how to meditate years and years and years ago and i remember when he first went to chinese medical school and um he was classically he's classically trained in uh chinese medicine so acupuncture was really what he was practicing at the beginning and now he's really focused on meditative healing aaron teach if you want to look him up he's amazing um but um so i remember when he was first going to school and my thought of acupuncture i was like you and he's my brother i'm like you are not fucking touching me with those things (laughs) and i hated needles i'm like don't even think about it and i was super sick once and he was home we were both home for some reason at my parents house and I, I mean, I, it was like very bad stomach sick, icky coming, all, all this stuff. And he's like, I can help you. I can help you. And I was like, fine. Like at some point I was just so miserable. So he literally laid me on the bathroom floor, stuck a bunch of needles in me. And 20 minutes later it stopped. And I was like, okay. Like you can't argue with that. Yeah. And I, so I came to, I very strongly believe in the power of acupuncture. It's a regular part of my health, um, health regimen, similar relationship with meditation. So, you know, I'd see my brother wake up early in the morning. He, he does Kundalini, um, and Satnam Rasayan, if I'm saying that correctly. So he meditates every morning. I mean, that the way I, he prioritizes sleep too, but that is just a part of his being. Um, so when he got me to meditate for the first time, it was sort of similar of like, I'm like, dude, I, I don't have time for this. Like, he's like, come on, just, and we were up at our parents' lake house and, and I was like, oh, it's a pretty summer day. I'll like sit outside with my brother. And he took me through this guided meditation and I felt like, and I don't smoke a lot of pot, but like, I felt like I had just smoked a big joint. Like I was giggly, I was happy, I was relaxed. I'm like, oh my God, this works. He's like, yeah, of course it works. And this is, so I, I started to believe in meditation, but I am too antsy and that's the point of meditation to, to do it in that form every day. And I am someone who needs to be guided. Um, so what, how, how does meditation fit into my life? Um, I went through a phase where I did it in the morning. Um, I do a, a little mini one every morning. So when I wake up, um, I will I'll open my eyes, but then I'll shut them again. Um, and I'll let myself just sort of breathe um, and relax and refocus and let myself wake up. That I, I will then go into sitting position and I do this breathing exercise that sort of wakes me up and then I go into my day so it's nothing complicated and I'd say it's probably like a two to four minute thing to just set me up that's fine it's whatever you need and so can you describe the the breathing exercise Um, yes I do I do fire breathing oh cool yeah so I do I do fire breathing um for for people who don't know what that is can you just sort of describe that to them yeah so fire breathing um is uh so you take in a big deep breath and then uh, it's basically coming from your abdomen, but you're exhaling very quickly 
for a minute straight. So it sounds sounds going by like you. Um, but it's all about the exhale. So you've taken a big inhale, and then for a minute, I'm just breathing out. And it's ex- the thought is that it's expelling uh, quite a lot, um, especially. I, I say it's, I'm sort of like shaking off sleep, um, but it also wakes up the body. Uh, it gets your circulation going. Sometimes if you do fire breathing, you can actually like get your heart rate up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, it wakes me up. It, it totally works. I don't actually, you just reminded me I should start doing that again. I was exposed to it for the first time um, a little while ago at a, what, what was it, I guess? It was an event at Lululemon Hub 17 and it was a guided meditation with Gabby Bernstein. And she, so she led the meditation and she sort of incorporated fire breathing into it. And I just remember sort of like the effect that you just described after that first meditation where you felt almost like a little stoned and giggly. I felt energized. Like it was crazy. My heart rate definitely went up, like no question. Um, And we only did it for in total, like maybe we did two rounds of it. So all in all, maybe what, like two minutes? Yeah. Um, Unreal. It it blew me away. it, It really does. It wakes you up and you know... And so for me, that's that's one form of meditation I do. And then depending on how my day is going, there's just moments where I will come back to meditation when I need it. Whether my head is, you know, I'm jumping into work and I'm just not focusing well, I'll take a moment to step back um, and sit quietly and breathe for a few minutes, whether I do it on my own or I'll do it like a 10 minute guided meditation and um, and just sort of clear my mind out. Um, in particular in moments if I'm feeling very anxious I come back to my breath Um, it just is a a place I that's meditation to me it's this place I can always come back to um, in moments where I'm either not feeling focused or creative or feeling anxious about something and it might be something as simple as I'm sitting in a cab and I'm freaking out and I close my eyes and I take five deep breaths and to me that's meditation but to me meditation is also when I go running and I get into that zone Mm -hmm. and I'm listening to my music and my head is clear that to me is meditation and when I go to soul cycle and you know you're just in that cadence and everything else has fallen away and I'm breathing, that is also meditation. I'm a huge yogi, um, so that's moving meditation. Um, so the same way I, I don't subscribe to the like, go to bed at 11 every night, and what, like it, and it's how I see all of health. Again, there is no best. There's only what's best for you, mm-hmm. and again, that is a mixture of what is going to make you feel best, but what you're actually going to stick to. Because if you don't stick to it, there's no point in it. So sure, optimally, is it optimal for me to every morning do 20 minutes of meditation and I would be this like even higher functioning person and be even clearer in head? Sure. But that's not, it's just, it's not sustainable to me. I, I don't stick to that. I stick to meditation in this way. And also if you try and play too sort of hard and fast with the rules like that it could actually have the opposite effect and become a burden yes right like maybe if you're someone who i mean i started i made this mistake a lot in the beginning as well um i like to meditate in the mornings but what i would do was i had a specific time where it was like every morning i have to wake up at this time now and i basically fell into the trap you described before where i'd have a late night and i'd be like well i'm not going to ruin my routine so i'm still going to wake up at five and i would get four hours of sleep that night and wake up like feeling like death and like mm-hmm. oh now I've got to meditate uh and like and then 
I stopped, luckily I stopped it, you know, after maybe the second time that happened, stopped the whole, like, oh, I have to wake up at the same time thing because I was like, I'm, I enjoyed my meditation practice and I don't want it to become a burden. Yes. So it's, it's not being too sort of, and actually we, again, before we started uh, recording, we were talking a little bit about diet and food. Um, I, um, I've been plant-based for about the last eight to 10 months, maybe coming up on a year. It's hard to say. Well done. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great, but I'll, I'll also say at the same time that I totally eat, you know, every now and then dairy or some meat. Um, I tried to be vegetarian twice in the past and failed miserably. Like the one time I failed the next day and I just stopped (laughs) it. And then the second time was more recent. That's quite a um, long relationship. And the second time I was so gung ho, like I, the day I decided I wanted to become a vegan, I was, (laughs) I changed, I put the word vegan, even in my Instagram bio. I'm like, and I'm a vegan, like, how obnoxious is that? Um, and two days later, I took it out. I was like, no, no, I'm definitely not a vegan. Um, and the difference between those two failed attempts and now, also I'm South African, meat is like in our culture. If you've ever had biltong, do you know what that is? No. Oh, you haven't lived. Oh. It's like our version of beef jerky and it's it's fucking oh, awesome. I'm going to have to try that. But um, Coming from the vegan. Mode. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you can. And that's what I'm saying. The reason why I've been able to be successful this time is that I haven't taken an all or nothing approach. So don't get it wrong, like I will eat vegan every single day for like two weeks. But then if I'm out at a really nice restaurant, like you were just talking about like meatballs, right? Uh, from like a really good Italian restaurant like Rayo's in New York. What are you going to do? Go there and not eat the meatballs? Like I'm not a crazy person. Yeah, I also think, you know, a huge part of health that we sort of ignore or underappreciate is the effects on the negative end of stress and on the positive end of happiness. Um, there are studies of the chemical effects that both of those, what we consider emotions, on our health. Um, and I learned this with in relationship to food and health. The, the biggest lesson I learned was when my mother was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer in 2010, which was actually the reason I left my traditional job at that point and set me on a different path. Um, you know, we were very lucky in a lot of ways to be, we were about as prepared as we could be as a, as a family to go into cancer, uh, to go into this cancer journey. My, my father is a very, very well-respected and talented conventional doctor on the alternative side so he's had people on anti-candida and anti and gluten-free diets since the 70s mm-hmm. when people weren't even talking about this and he's a pioneer in immunology and uh environmental medicine and so th- that was just deeply ingrained in me and um so we have his knowledge we have my brother who's in chinese medicine his wife has her phd in social work on oncology and has written a best-selling New York's a New York Times best-selling book on uh, radical remission of cancer. So people who have wow. been diagnosed with terminal cancer and uh, decided to forego conventional treatment and ended up going into remission. And she studied the the factors, uh, the common factors between them. Uh, it's called the radical remission. It's radical remission is the name of the book if you want to get it. Anyway, so we we knew going into this that we couldn't just rely on conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was not given a good prognosis. No one 
stage four ovarian cancer just is not a good prognosis. Um, so uh, likely scenario, six months to a year, good, good scenario, five years. Um, it's a tough pill to swallow, but you know how I see health in general, but also now cancer is if you just turn to your oncologist and you just turn to oncology for cancer, it's like someone telling you that there are a million mean soldiers that are about to come invade your house and they hand you a tanker and they're like, here, go fight. Can you fight a million people as one person? No, you need that tanker. So it's not like I don't believe in oncology at all, but you can't, you're not going to win with just that tanker. Mm -hmm. You have to build an army to build an army, to fight an army. And what is that army? It's your diet, it's your mental state, it's your physical state. Like she needed to be strong and ready to fight. We were going into battle. Um, and conventional medicine does not respect the power mm-hmm. of food. Um, so this is all to say that we immediately uh, brought on a nutritionist to get her on a diet and my mom um, she wasn't someone who like ran out and ate McDonald's or like lived on junk food, but um, she grew up in a European family, lived a lot of her life in Europe, and had a very European diet. But a European diet with American product does not work. So, mm-hmm. or is not healthy. Bread and cheese and meats, and she was constantly grazing, and it was very high quality food. And but or high quality, like again, not McDonald's, but certainly was not going to help her fight cancer right so and god bless my mother but and she was wonderful and special in so many ways but she was not domestic i mean the woman could burn water she (laughs) did not cook so we knew we needed help to a convince her to get on a diet um and b we needed resources we brought in chefs to keep her on this diet but the lesson that i had learned so we brought in this amazing nutritionist stephanie sachs Um, And she spent about four days with my mom learning everything about her and her relationship to food and her emotional relationship to food. And her recommendation at the end ended up forming so much of how I now approach all of my health. And she sat down with us and she said, look, in an optimal scenario, you would, we would put you on a raw vegan diet filled with tons of healthy fats and just nutrients 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 um like that that is the optimal diet for you to fight this disease right now however i've gotten to know you over four days you're never going to stick to that and you're going to go back to eating bread and cheese and meat in a week if i put you on that diet so i'm going to make a meal plan for you that's not your bread meat and cheese but it's not going to be raw and vegan. It's going to be a nutrient-dense meal plan that you still feel happy about your food and satiated by it. And um, and you're not stressed and having to think about what you're eating or not eating. And it's food that you that's tasty and you look forward to eating. Um, and And that goes back to your point of like, I, I too have started to and I I have for a long time made an effort to move more and more towards plant-based particularly after losing my mother to cancer and reading so much about uh, 
effects from animal products, in particular dairy and, and female cancers, um, and also just the effects on the planet. And there's so many reasons to go um, plant-based. Um, and I can talk about the reasons why it hasn't fully worked for me, even from a health perspective, but going to get those meatballs at, at Rouse, that is, it's joyful. It's, it's joyful to sit around a table with a group of friends and eat a delicious meal or go out to a restaurant or to have a glass of wine. And the happiness that that brings or the stress that it might take away also has such positive effects on your health mm-hmm. that might outweigh the one meatball that you're eating. Yeah. And I, I strongly believe in that. To me, that that is mindfulness, is being mindful about your decisions. That I mind I always say I do the best I can as often as I can. So when I have complete control and I'm just eating on my own, I'm going to eat vegan. But if I'm going out to a, a restaurant with a bunch of friends or somebody's cooking or, or you know, I'm going to try some famous chef who's known for something that isn't plant-based, I love those kinds of experiences and they bring me joy. And that is good for my health too. Absolutely. It's good so, for your soul. It's good for my soul. So I embrace those moments. So we've talked a bit about challenges and one thing um, that I believe in, I'm, I'm curious to hear your take and I think you've basically answered 75% of the question that I'm actually about to ask you right now is when we're faced with challenges often we'll look back to like let's say you're facing a particular challenge you'll look back to a bigger challenge that you were able to overcome in the past and that will give you strength and the confidence to sort of attack the one that's in front of you for you and I think we've already talked about what the answer is here what was the biggest challenge that what is the biggest challenge you have ever faced and how did you overcome that? And I have a feeling you're going to talk about your mom and I'd love to know what you do. And I know it's an ongoing thing just to, you know, continue living your life and, and how you were able to, I don't want to say get past it because it's not something you ever get past, but you, you kind of see where I'm going with this. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, so yes, you're correct. Uh, losing my mother was, and is the most significant uh, loss that I have ever gone through. Um, and, and mine was particular, as I said, I lost a dear friend literally six weeks later also to cancer, he was 32. Um, he was fought for a year and a half, that was shocking. And then I was, with, I was in a relationship for three and a half years and for two and a half years and thought I was that that was the man I was going to marry and that ended very suddenly only a month or two later. So it was like the, all of these areas of my life sort of exploded. Um, and in particular with my mother, it is a work in progress. Um, it, you are correct. It is something that the way I always explain it is it's like someone cut off my arm, like, she was so a part of me that that loss literally was losing a part of myself. Um, and it was like someone cut off my arm and life will forever be a little bit more challenging and will never be the same as when I had two arms. But every day 
I get a little bit better and a little bit more proficient at living with one art. Wow. And that's how I see it. And, um, you know, what are the other ways that I get through it? I um, am very lucky to have a support system. Um, I have a network of women because I do think there is a particular um, experience for women that have lost their mothers, especially before marriage and before children. Like those, those are just things you assume you'll have your mom around for. Um, so I have a group of women around the same age as, as me who have also lost their moms. <laughs> and uh, one of them ca- calls us the, the dead moms club. Um, and, and I know that, that but, but when you're in it, you, of course you can call it that. But something that we say a lot, it's like you're a, a member of the most exclusive club you never want to be a part of. Um, and I turn to those women a lot because it is such a particular experience. Um, that you know sometimes you just need to turn to people who who know that experience um the other things that i will say go to therapy um i have not done the best job in that i am always a believer in therapy the same way i'm a believer in checking in with a personal trainer every so often even if you don't need one daily um um therapy and support groups i I just they are whether you've lost a parent or you're having the best day of your life just it is a an emotional personal trainer it is I cannot speak more about it um, but um, uh, I think I also you know you go I, I didn't handle it the best way and I threw myself into work and I distracted myself and that sort of caught up with me and I crashed and then I tried a different way and I crashed off of that. And, um, you know, it's a lot of trial and error, but building a support system. And, and the other thing is, is be kind with yourself about it. I, she passed away um, February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2015. So in two weeks, it will be the third anniversary. And it, becomes a little bit more normal but it doesn't become easier and there's that moment like year one everything is really tough and then year two is the first of everything first holidays without her first her birthday my birthday like all the stuff that she's not there for um and then year two it's there's almost something that's a little harder because you think it's gonna be easier and it's not and you're almost judging yourself as like, well, everyone else seems to have moved past this, why have I not? So to be kind with yourself and to allow yourself to feel what you need to feel in the moments you need to feel it. Sometimes I need to just be really sad about it. And if I don't let myself do that and I bottle it up, it's it, it will eat me and it will catch up with me. Um, I. I talk about her constantly. I write about her. I share her, and and that to me helps me um, with it. Um, and I don't know if this is like a coping mechanism, so I don't know if this is too tangential of what you were trying to ask. But it's something that I've started to do more writing about and put more thought behind, and I, it's something I love sharing. Um, so I like to call. I think there is. 
something particular in the experience of someone, I'd say before the age of 40, but maybe like 45, um, who has gone through personal tragedy. And I've come up with this term called um, the most unfortunate privilege. Because I think people who have gone through personal tragedy before a certain age have a completely different perspective on life, um, on mortality, on the way you value time, on the way you value the people around you, um, not taking anything for granted, uh, maybe living life a little fuller, um, letting go of needing to be in control of things. There are so many so many amazing lessons that you learn um, and, and it's I can smell it on someone of like oh you have the perspective mm. you don't sweat the small stuff as much I mean don't get me wrong I sweat plenty of small stuff but in a different kind of way and that perspective is such a privilege it makes you live life so differently but what it takes to gain that perspective is deeply unfortunate and I would not wish it upon anyone so I call it the most unfortunate privilege and even just thinking about it in that way helps me cope because in the moments where I feel so sad and granted I would give up every ounce of perspective to have my mother show up and sit right next to me right here right now um, but that's not going to happen you know Cheryl Sandberg said it beautifully of I don't get plan A. I don't get her back. So what mm. is plan B? Um, and plan B is is embracing all of the lessons that came off of that came out of this, living in a way where I can honor her every day and and embracing the most unfortunate privilege that's ever happened in my life. And and continuing to inspire other people to do the same. Wow. Well, that is um, a powerful place, I think, for us to leave it. Um, thank you so much, first of all, for sharing that. Uh, I know it's not easy. And thank you for and letting me share. I'm sure there are people listening who will want to reach out to you uh, to hear more about everything, but also about that. What's the best way for people to sort of find you online? Um, probably through Instagram. Uh, it's my handle is at sweatlife underscore nyc um just send me a direct message i as much as you guys might think i have some staff of people following me around i don't so i check that um but if i don't get back to you right away don't take it personally um you can always shoot an email as well to sweatlife nyc at gmail.com um if you want to check out the sweat life and i've written a lot about uh, my journey with my mom and my take on health on uh, sweatlifenyc.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dean. It's, it's really, I think this project is, is admirable and needed. Um, so good on you. Hey guys, Dean here again. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that, because there is a lot more to come. I will continue to release a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, head over to gammaprojectpodcast.com for episode notes, 
blog posts, and other things related to the show. And here's an idea. If you like what you just heard, hit us up with a star rating or even write a review. That stuff really helps. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way that you were born to. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space with their collection of zero-drop running shoes featuring the brand's signature foot-shape toe box. Get fired up for taking your runs outside again with their lineup of fast and light road shoes, which includes models like the Ultra Duo, featuring 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel. It also weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. The Ultra Duo is available at fleetfeetsports.com through March, and that's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T, sports.com. And you can also head over to ultrarunning.com for dozens of other models and styles. I would definitely recommend checking out their trail section while you're there, When it comes to taking my runs off-road, there isn't another brand that I will wear, and that is a fact. You can find all of that, plus some outstanding advice and tips that I personally use to correct my own running form, at ultrarunning.com. That's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G.com. 